Now, we've come today to the final section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, starting its... Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name we drove out demons and performed many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Father God, help us to hear these words and not just to hear them, but to understand them and to put them into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the last few weeks, we have looked at the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' most famous teaching on the Christian life. And it's powerful stuff, but often deeply demanding, challenging, sometimes, frankly, unsettling. Jesus' standards are much higher than ours. And when we come up against teaching, like last week's teaching against judging other people, or the teaching about anger, 
or honesty or keeping ourselves from greed or worry, we have a real feeling that this is something we cannot live up to. Even more, there is another challenge here in this sermon um, because Jesus, as he speaks about the way we're to live, he has shown us, particularly all the way through chapter 6 and 7, that what equips us to live out his teaching is a close, trusting relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. Indeed, what he's saying is simply that keeping some rules about good and bad will never be enough. We were made for more than that kind of simple morality. We were made for a life of relationship with God himself, a life of constant trusting dependence on God as Father that will then equip us to live in a wonderfully new way. And so as we come to the end of the sermon, Jesus is asking us, do, do we know him? Do we know God as Father in that way? And will we come to him? And he, he starts his conclusion with a great invitation, an invitation to come to the Father. He then goes on to three separate warnings. When Jesus does things in threes, you know he's saying something important. Three pictures, the wolf in sheep's, sorry, the, the narrow gate, the wolf in sheep's clothing, and the house is built on rock and sand. He's showing us how easily we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're listening to him and yet never have that relationship with God that he is offering us. He doesn't want us to be deceived by that. He wants us to listen to his appeal to come to the Father. And, and he's saying that, that is like the hypocritical religious teachers of his day who so easily settled for a morality that was all on the outside. Their hearts weren't changed by that relationship with God. The relationship that we can have with, with God as Father, of course, is marked by a trusting willingness to put his will, his commands into practice. We can't get into that relationship by obedience, but obedience to his commands is a sign of that relationship. And Jesus calls us to respond to that. Even more, though, as we look through this passage, we see that Jesus really isn't just a teacher or a prophet teaching about these things. He is the one whose words are where to put into practice. He is the one who will judge on judgment day. He is the one with whom we must have a relationship if we're to come through that day. To be with him, he tells us in this passage, is life. On the other hand, to be apart from him for eternity is the worst, absolutely the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. Jesus is the center of this teaching. And the, the sermon, therefore, that he is preaching to us is this. You know, do we know him and does he know us? Do our actions show that we know him? So firstly, that great invitation in 7 to 12. Jesus ends his sermon, as we said, with an invitation. Come, come and know the Father through me. If you discovered how far your, short your life falls compared to Jesus' teaching, and you want to learn to live in the way he describes, or if you've discovered you don't have that relationship of glad, confident trust with the Father, Jesus says, if you lack this, come. Just come. Just come and ask. Seek him. Seek this relationship with him. Knock on the door because he is ready there to welcome you right now. Now, how can we be so confident that he will welcome us in? Well, simply, this is what God is like. He says, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or 
If he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake, you know, a poisonous snake. Seriously, asking the question, none of us, if our kids ask for a sandwich, give them a roof tile. And I hope that none of us ever, when our kids are thirsty, have thought, I'll just pour them a glass of bleach and then snigger as they drink it down and as their throat burns. Do do we do that? You know, there are a few parents out there who do these things, but Jesus says, if you then, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You know how to give decent gifts. He's not saying, because you're great parents. You see, even when you mess up, you're a better parent than that. Even if your parents messed up, they probably knew how to do better than that. If we are parents, we're very aware of our failings. And he's saying, don't measure God's fatherhood by either your parents or yourself as a father. God's fatherhood is far better. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's a good father. He's the good father. In comparison to him, the very best human father is evil in comparison. So he's saying, you know, do you know this father? We, we so often call him father like it's just some kind of title. But he loves us. He's for us. He cares about your life. He cares about your struggles. He wants the very best for you. He wants it more than you want it yourself. He is the good father. So come, ask, seek, and knock. And maybe even if you've been a Christian for many years, you need to pray. You need to come and ask and say, I want to know this real fatherhood of God, this warmth of love which he has for me. Perhaps you look at the instructions in the Sermon on the Mount and think, I can't do this on my own. And you need to say, Father, I I need help. And he will come and he will help you. Ask, seek, and knock. Jesus is inviting us to come and know this fatherly care. That's a truth which is true for the simplest little prayer you can pray. When you pray, God is a good good God like this. But it's also true when you put your life in his hands and come to him and say, I want to know you. Jesus then briefly sums up all his teaching about the moral life, the life as it relates to human beings. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. The, all the Old Testament, when it teaches about what, where we're to behave to one another, this is what it's teaching. If you read it differently like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, then perhaps we're looking at the outside just the, and, and not at the heart of what it's about. It's a very simple little throwaway line Jesus gives. He's going to pass on straight away. And yet here is you know, the deepest ethic, the deepest teaching on the moral life that we can have. That proactive love that seeks not just to not harm others, not just to do things, not to do things that we wouldn't like done to us, but proactively to love and do good to others as we would have them do to us. That's why we need some help. Because living that way all the time is a very, very demanding thing. Now Jesus could end his sermon there. 
we'll be ending on a high note, but he wants to give us three warnings, and they are important warnings. All the way through his sermon, he has been warning us there is a danger of being tricking ourselves into a, a hypocritical kind of religion where we try and impress people on the outside with what we look like and what we do without being really changed in our hearts. Jesus is saying, I want you to know the real thing. So I'm going to give you three examples that will help you avoid the fake. You know, knowing the, the real from the fake is a really important skill in life, generally. I know someone who recently got a letter from HMRC. And it said that they owed them a lot of money. And it was plausible because of things that had happened in their life recently. They might well owe them a lot of money without realizing. And so they went to pay it in. Fortunately, they did it in internet banking and a big flashing sign came up saying, warning, this is not HMRC. The account you're about to pay into is something entirely different and probably trying to steal all your money. Now, often you can spot, if, you, if you're careful, thoughtful, that kind of fraud. You might see a few spelling mistakes, or a strange web address, or just a request for money that you didn't quite know. But in the end, often you just simply have to come back and phone up HMRC Revenue and Customs and say, hey guys, did you ask me for £5,000 last week or not? You need a connection to them. Jesus is giving us a warning to help us spot fraud, both whether from inside ourselves or from outside, that would keep us from knowing God. His first warning is about the narrow gate. He's telling us, in other words, that we can be deceived by the crowd. We will not find the way to life with him by following the crowd. Entered through the narrow gate, because wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. The way is wide. It's like Sochi Hall on a busy Saturday in the middle of the sails. You know, full of people just wandering to and fro, all, all, all doing their own thing. The way to life is different. It is small. The gate is narrow. It leads to life. It's hard. If you've ever done hill walking, done some ridge walks, this is Striding Edge on Hill of Ellen. It takes a bit of skill to stay on the path sometimes. Sometimes it's a little hairy. The path is narrow. Now, Jesus here in this passage is not answering our question. We, we often have this question, you know, will, will, how many people are going to be in heaven, how many in hell? People actually asked him that later in Luke 13, and he, he answered back saying, essentially, what you need to know is that the gate is narrow and you need to find it. I'm not here to answer your speculations. I'm here to call you to life. And of course, Revelation talks of a, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and language gathered in heaven. But he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. To follow Jesus, in other words, we have to make a hard choice. We have to follow the hard road. We have to swim against the current. We have to march to a different drum. Have you made that choice? Have you been said to him, I'm willing to follow you even if the way is hard and lonely at times? Even if it's difficult, even if the people around me are going a different way, will you come through the narrow gate and follow him rather than being deceived by the crowd? The second deception he warns us against is close to home. It's inside the church. It's the danger of false teachers, of wolves. He gives us another contrast between the false prophet or teacher and the true prophet or teacher. 
There are teachers out there, he says, who are not teachers of my way at all. Whatever they claim to be. You know, you are my sheep. And you know how a wolf can go through a whole flock of sheep, killing and maiming them just for the fun of it. You know, it takes one to eat. But then it goes ripping and tearing through the rest. Imagine how much worse it would be if wolves were able to dress in a nice fleece and go ba until the little lamb trotted up right in front of its mouth. That's the picture. And we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus says this. You know, we've, I'm sure most of us, read enough newspaper accounts of horrible scandals in the church. You know, pedophile priests and all of that. Jesus warned us. But harder to spot, perhaps, and the first lot can be hard enough, are those who twist Jesus' teaching so it's easier, or so it's more appealing, or so it gets a bigger crowd. Teachers who, in the words of 2 Timothy, say what people's itching ears want to hear. People who, according to Acts 20, distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. In other words, they teach what will get them the most people listening to them because it makes them feel good. Often what that looks like is being willing to talk about love and grace and goodness, but never being willing to talk about the hard things about sin or hell or the demands of the Christian life. Um, Just one example. Many people will say the greatest theologian of the 20th century was a man called Karl Barth. Now, I suspect not many of you are reading Karl Barth regularly, but He's been a huge influence on people all around Scotland. And you can see why when you read him. He's, he's passionate about Jesus and about his grace. He, he speaks about him with wonder and joy. But there's one thing that you really notice if you read him after a while. He, he doesn't like people talking about obligations in the Christian life, about moral teaching. He, doesn't like pe- he actually criticized other theologians for talking too much about Jesus' commands, because he said, you know, that's law. We need, we need to talk about grace and forgiveness. And that part is just to make sure we come to God for grace. And you can understand the desire, but it come, it's come out in the last few years that the reason he taught like that was very simple. He was committing adultery with his secretary for 20 years, and he forced his wife to live in the same house as her. If you're living like that, Is it any wonder you don't want to hear what Jesus has to say about how we should live? Of course, when his teaching filters down and people listen to him about the way to teach, the teaching of how to live the Christian life falls out of our teaching, falls out of the Christian church. So what what are we to do when we're either finding a church or choosing a book to read or listening to someone online or watching someone on TV? Well, Jesus says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. In other words, don't assume that because they all use all the right words, because they talk about Jesus with emotion, because they're prayerful, that that's enough, that that shows they're real. The Bible uses the word fruit to talk about our behavior, our attitudes, the, the, thing, the changes that God brings in our life. Galatians 5 talks about love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruits of, someone, of knowing God through the Holy Spirit. If, on the other hand, they show hatred or envy or rage or selfish ambition or greed or lust, it's not a good sign. Don't listen. Or if you can't see that, if you don't know them, does their teaching call you to self-sacrifice? Does it challenge you? Does it hold you to what Jesus taught? Are there parts of the Bible's teaching they will always choose to miss out? 
Does their teaching lead to good lives, good fruit in the people who, the, who, the, who listen to them? It's a little like um, we had someone over to fix our porch three years ago. Four years ago? I can't remember. It was dripping. Rain coming through every time the rain was heavy. And this guy said, oh, it's fine. All I need to do is you know, put a new layer of um, asphalt stuff on the roof, uh, patch a bit of wood here, be good. A few years later, it's not really so much drips as a sort of small river that comes through the roof. More to the point, because we didn't fix it properly then, because our teacher in the art of porch fixing didn't teach us properly, the whole thing is rotten. And now instead of a small fix, we've got to rip down the whole thing and start over. A teacher who won't tell you sometimes the hard things you don't want to hear so you can fix them is often not a good one. Now, this isn't theory. You know, I, I and I'm sure many other people here could tell you stories of people we've known who have ended up abandoning the Christian faith or getting wrapped up in cults or have just lost all their confidence and joy in their Christian faith because they listened to the wrong people. So that's a warning from Jesus. We need to investigate the fruit. But then Jesus gives us, he carries on with that warning. And whether this bit applies only to the false prophets or to, to all of us, in a sense, uh, I'll leave you to decide. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's possible to call someone Jesus Lord in enthusiasm and not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will do that. And obviously, the Sermon on the Mount has made it very clear, hasn't it, that this is not about having a perfect life. We come as people who are poor in spirit, people who are aware of their need and the wrong in their lives. But on the other hand, we must treat Jesus as Lord and seek to shape our lives according to his teaching, if we are to be his. These people here, they do amazing things. You know, they seem like astonishing people. They've done, given prophecies. They've done miracles. They're, they're astonishing. And Jesus says, in the end, they're not his disciples at all. I never knew you. It's like Judas in the Gospels. Someone who did miracles and went around the country preaching about Jesus. And he was not a true disciple at all. But if you look closely, what are these people saying to Jesus? They're saying, because of all these great things I've done, you should let me into heaven. They're saying, look what we've done for you. Instead of realizing it, just as we were talking about with the kids, about what he has done for them. They've missed the point. They never really had the real heart goodness that comes from him because they didn't know him. Because they didn't have the relationship with him. So that's a warning for us not to be deceived, even in the church, not to forget that we need to know him and entrust our lives to him with a willingness to obey him. And then finally, it comes to the final warning, the rock and the sand, that we can even deceive ourselves. Is your life built on a foundation of confident trust in Jesus? Or have you put your foundations somewhere where your building of your life can sink slowly into the sand? To hear Jesus' words, put them into practice, is like being a wise builder who builds their house on solid rock. When the hard times come, when the wind and rain come, when, when even the storm of judgment day comes, that house, that life will not fall. It stand firm. There's another house. Might look the same, might even be grander, might be better. But it's built on sand. Why? Because 
This is a person who hears the word of Jesus but doesn't trust them enough to put them into practice. And if we do that, our life is built on sand. And however good it looks, one day it will fall, whether that's in the storms of this life, in the illness or financial trouble or family trouble, or in the judgment day itself. Are we putting his words into practice? That is what will show whether we trust him and whether he, we will be resting on him, the solid rock who will take us through. Now, that's the end of Jesus' words. But the people who were listening to him, they were amazed. They were astonished at his teaching because of his authority. And just to cast our minds back over what he said so far, it's not surprising. He said in verse 22 that he is the one to whom every person will explain themselves on judgment day. He said, he is the one who will judge. And what will matter on that day is whether he knew us. And what he calls destruction, the final condemnation itself, is if he says, go away from me. Because he's saying, you know, life and goodness are found in knowing God through him. Death, destruction, torment, whatever word we use, ultimately to be away from him is to lose everything. Nothing worse than can be imagined than that. And Jesus warned us often about it. But there is no need for us to go to that destruction because he who is at the center invites us. He invites you and me to ask, to seek, to knock, to come to him. And he will answer. He promises that. It's decision time, really, for each of us. He is saying are you willing to listen? Are you willing to take me at my word to entrust the direction of your life into my hands? You know, by nature, all of us are going our own way with a little crown on our head as if we're in our own kingdom. And he's calling us back to let him be king over our lives. Now, perhaps... There will be some of us who, even as we hear this, won't really be moved. Be, we'll know that there are areas when we are being disobedient to Jesus and not planning to do anything about it. If that is us, we, we need to, to listen to this. We need to know that we will stand before him one day as a judge. And we need to ask ourselves, will, will he know us? Others, though, have been disturbed and made uncomfortable. The Holy Spirit's been at work in your life, either today or in the past weeks. It's pinpointed areas of your life where you are falling short. You know, I, I know that I am. I'm sure I'm not alone. We want to obey God's law. God's commands Jesus' is teaching better than we do. And in our hearts, we are more concerned about him and his kingdom. But we need help. So let's come, let's ask, let's seek, and let's knock. This sermon is challenging, but it also brings comfort. He's saying, I'm not asking you to be perfect. I have great standards, but I invite those who are back from the beginning of the sermon, are poor in spirit, those who mourn for their sin, those who recognize their helplessness, in other words. Not the people who proudly appoint to their own achievements, but the people who are willing to come to him and be rescued. You know, there's something of the fraud in all of us, isn't there? But Jesus is asking, will you respond to me this morning?
I am inviting you into that relationship with the Father which changes everything. Where you can build your life on the solid rock that lasts forever. Where you can know me and know that warm intimacy with the Father that will change everything. Let's come to him. You are a good father, Lord. You do give good gifts. And you invite us not just to ask for a few requests, but to come and knock on your door and come in to be with you. Thank you. Don't let us miss out on that. Don't let us be caught in any of these different deceptions that could keep us from knowing you. We want that. We want to know you. We want life. Open our hearts and help us to come to you gladly and to trust that you will answer. In Jesus' name, amen.